welcome to episode 30 of Thinking in the Midst, a podcast about philosophy and action in education. With Dare Gottlieb, I'm Kara Furman. As teachers and students everywhere are counting down the days to winter break, most teachers are also grappling with the ethical quandaries of summative grading. Never fear, this week we bring on three guests to identify what grading is, debate its place in schooling, and consider how we can claim and reclaim space for ethical practice as we grade. While the guests disagreed on much, one important convergence was that grading practices should be assessed within the context of building human and humane relationships in the service of student learning. Welcome. It's exciting to see all of you today. And our topic today is on grading. And with that, um, Kenneth, can you start by introducing yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Kenneth Triggers. I'm a graduate student at Georgia State University. Uh, I am studying social foundations of education. My main work is on ontology and teacher education. Great. Thank you. And Gabe? Uh, hi, my name is Gabe Keen. I am uh, an instructor at the adjunct instructor at the University of Northern Iowa. Um, and uh, recently, I've I've been working on um, digital um, uh, meme spaces, particularly on the far right, uh, and implications for political education, public pedagogy, things like that. Um, and I have a, a number of ancillary interests as they sort of occur to me. Uh, great inflation recently being one of them. Great. And as an added perk today, we actually have three guests. And so, Darren, can you also introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Darren Boyles. I'm a distinguished university professor at Georgia State University and uh, work in the field of pragmatism broadly. Uh, and I'm interested in the grading issue uh, in part because uh, I think Gabe Keane is wrong. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that couldn't have been any better of an introduction. Uh it bears two things bear mentioning as we sort of get into our typical question one. The first is that uh, this grouping of guests came together or emerged out of uh, a panel session at the Ohio Valley Philosophy of Education Society conference that was held now uh, about six weeks ago. Um, that's that's one thing to mention. The second thing that I just want to highlight for our listeners is that in the chat, Kara actually put the title on grading and melodramatic public outcry. And I think that that is a, an important way actually to frame this issue. I've been thinking a lot about Libby Anchor, uh, political theorists work on melodrama and film. So like the, a characteristic element of the genre of melodrama has to do with the clear delineation of good and evil, the heightened uh, sense of moral urgency and uh, the utility of certain kinds of narratives to shore up uh, a set of understandings about who we are and what we value and that kind of thing. So as we think through the issues involved here, both uh, the effect of ChatGPT in the classrooms and the issues of grade inflation, all of those things are going to be in play. So even if that was supposed to be sort of a, a, a jokey parenthetical, and I don't assume that it was, that that import resonates uh, deeply. So with that, let me uh, just ask our first question, which is for all of you, what is the basic issue as you see it? And why does it matter? How did you come to be interested in this particular issue uh, as well? Um, given that Darren is responding to Gabe and or thinks that Gabe is wrong. Let me let me just start with Gabe here and then go to Kenneth and then to Darren. Yeah. Um, so so I guess I'll start in sort of reverse order with those sub questions in terms of how I became interested in this. I, I obviously there's a lot of um, public discussion about great inflation. There has been for a long time. People have been you know talking about this issue as a sort of moral blight on uh, arguably the university in particular, but our educational system in general, you know, since the 90s, um, at least. Uh, and and there's been um, discussion, you know, at the beginning of the paper I presented at OVPES, I cite a Harvard 
report from the eight, you know early 1900s about this sort of declining quality of education and the over over um, prevalence of high grades. Uh, so so it's a, an issue that I find interesting from a public discourse perspective. But I became particularly interested in it because of a what I see as a tension in the way that people in the foundations and philosophers of education talk about this issue, which is that there's a lot of, I think, um, well-founded uh, skepticism about grades as an institution generally are that they're they're uh, not objective. They're not uh, you know they're they're biased in many ways. The way we do assessment is biased against various sorts of uh, you know minority populations and things like that. Uh, grades aren't this um, sort of traditional story of this objective transcendental thing that you know signals or tracks in some meaningful way someone's intelligence or even academic achievement. Um, so there's a lot of that in our field, that sort of discussion. And yet, um, I, I was sort of anecdotally seeing, uh, often from the same people who talk that way, uh, a lot of consternation about this question of grade inflation and the sort of deprofessionalizing of the uh, teaching profession in the form of grades not serving any purpose anymore or people with doing bad work, getting high grades. And so I was interested in exploring what, why there's that sort of seeming inconsistency to me um, in the way people in our field at least talk about it. Uh, and I think obviously it matters for a lot of reasons. This is a, you know, assigning grades is a large part of what teachers do on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, both in the university and in K-12 settings. So I think it, it is an important issue. Um, and so, so that's, I, I think that's sort of most of those questions in that first part, how I came to be interested in it, why, why, what I think the issue is. Um, uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there for now, I suppose. Excellent. Thank you very much. And Kenneth, you're not working specifically, or you and Darren in conversation are not working specifically on grade inflation, but could you talk about how you came to be interested in ChatGPT and its role in the classroom in the way that it sort of overlaps with the kinds of tensions that Gabe is talking about? Sure. In the spring semester of 2023, uh, we were teaching a class, EDUC 2110, which is uh, critical and contemporary issues in education. and Traditionally, we've assigned a, an essay, like it's, we call it a research essay. So students will pick a topic, they'll do research on it, and then they'll write an eight to 10 page paper. Um, but famously, spring 2023 is the, the semester when ChatGPT was released. So we noticed that when students turned in their essays, they uh, were repetitive, they were... Um, they were all sort of similar. Um, it didn't, it didn't, they were generally pretty poor. Um, and then two weeks after we graded the, the essays, our university, Georgia State University, released a chat GPT detection tool. So we took some of the essays that were submitted to us and, and uploaded them to this chat GPT detection tool and, and found out that uh, a large percentage of our class had plagiarized using chat GPT. I think out of out of 30 students total, we had about uh, seven to 10. I can't remember the exact number, but it was, it was a large portion. And we we were skeptical at first because the, the university qualified their release of this tool by saying it might not be exactly accurate. So use caution when using it to attribute plagiarism. So uh, the other TA and I intentionally wrote a paper that was using sections of text written by ChatGPT and uploaded it to this same uh, plagiarism detection tool to, to test and see if it was actually accurate. And, and what we found actually was that instead of over-reporting uh, ChatGPT use, it was actually under-reporting uh, AI plagiarism by a large amount. So the number of students that actually did use ChatGPT is likely to be height, uh, uh, quite higher than what we had initially thought. So it, it not only presented problems practically in terms of what, what do we do next? Do we uh, attribute or do we accuse these students of plagiarism? What do we do about the grade? T to Gabe's point, does the grade matter? Um, wh what do we do with the recommendations from the university in, in terms of their qualifications saying you shouldn't use this chat GBT detection tool to, to attribute plagiarism? Uh, they even said that... Uh, using ChatGPT to, to construct essays did not count as plagiarism 
or did not necessarily count as plagiarism. So uh, that's one aspect of it. The, The second aspect of it is the theoretical. What are we doing as educators, as teachers, as, as instructors that leads to the students to want to use ChatGPT to, to plagiarize their essays? Is there something that we're doing, other, in other words, that could be changed to alter the environment of education to make it uh, so that students aren't inclined to use this uh, plagiarism tool? So... Uh, that turned into the paper that we gave at OVPES uh, addressing the, both of those topics, the practical and the theoretical. And we looked at uh, Charles Sanders Peirce and his theory of reason. And his idea is that the whole reason, the whole, uh, I can't use reason and reason, but the whole way that reason works is uh, through fallibilism. If reason is this mechanism to correct and monitor and regulate thinking, then being wrong, being fallible is the more primordial state. So reason needs and feeds off of fallibilism to function. The way that ChatGPT works is that it just provides text. It doesn't provide any citations. It just provides facts as if they were uh, unproblematically true. Uh, And especially in the case of students using that to just copy and paste into essays, it completely does away with all Uh, need for reason to function. And if we are educating for the purpose of uh, exercising reason and and, um, applying reason to our thinking in this sort of self-regulating form that person is advocating for, then that's obviously not a, uh, the the way that they were using uh, AI to copy and paste in this uncritical way is, is obviously not doing anything to further the goal of education for reason. Excellent. And let me turn to Darren and ask, uh, and ask him to sort of add on to what uh, Kenneth said and also to move in the direction of conversing with Gabe. And I realize that that's an unfair thing to ask because Gabe has not actually laid out his, the, the point that I take it you disagree with him on. So we'll, we'll get into that later, but, from yeah, the, so the, the from, yeah, go ahead. The the motivational sort of point of this is the the issue that's of interest to me. Why are the students using Chat GPT in the first place? <clears throat> and it seems to me that the great inflation point that Gabe is uh, operating on has some validity. That is, that there has been great inflation, and they have figured out students have figured out how to game the system. And so the way to game the system is to cheat as best you can and not get caught, uh, and that way you get credit even though you haven't done the work. And I'm interested in that motivation, particularly for the students that we're teaching, because they're going to be teachers. And it seems to me that they should be the people who are the most interested in learning. So why is it the case that they are not interested in learning uh, about interesting things? And that isn't just self-referential that the course has interesting topics. There are lots of interesting topics that uh, are in our field. Uh, And whether it has to do with ethics or whether it has to do with policy or whether it has to do with uh, politics or economics, those are all fascinating and important elements that inform what it means to be a teacher and what it means in our case we'd put the qualifier good teacher because we're not interested in just any more average teachers we want good teachers so what does that require well one of the things that it requires is that they be good learners good learners do not on my view utilize chat gpt and submit it as their own work Um, And so there is a conflation here that somebody else will need to unpack about the motivation of the students to game the system, where they've learned that and learned it well in secondary education, and it translates into higher ed. And then also whether this question of grading is somehow an evil force that we should do away with. And uh, I think it's possible to do grading well with judgment, which is not judgmental in the negative sense, but with informed reason judgment. Uh, to make claims about the quality of the work. And it's a responsibility that I think faculty have and that they should take up and take up seriously rather than just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Excellent. Thank you all. So our next question is kind of what have you found out or what have you learned about the topic? And I'm going to make it really precise for for right now and ask you, um, this is sort of where you went, Darren. What is grading? Um, and 
what might or might not be a purpose of it if we think about what is a learner? Um, And maybe, Darren, because you started to lead us there, why don't you start? And then we'll ask to hear from Gabe and then Kenneth to sort of define what it is that we are talking about here. So the best case scenario would be um, an instructor, a teacher, professor who uh, is somehow expert in their field, and I use that word broadly, even though expert is a narrowing form. But we we we're good at what we do. We have background. We read in the field, and we know what we're talking about, generally speaking. Uh, and so it's incumbent upon me then to read students' work, interpret students' work, question students' work, and then make evaluations on the quality of the responses and whatever is the end product that might come about, whether that's a research paper, whether that's a quiz, whether that's a statement that they work on iteratively, whatever the whatever the assignment. Now, specifically, I think to Kara's point, I have a luxury that other f- folks don't, which is not only do I have TAs, Uh, But I also don't have seven classes in a row as a public school teacher with 30 students per class. So now we have to disaggregate sort of the levels and the privilege and the access to uh, the time that's required to do the kind of judgment that I'm talking about. Uh, That said, that's not a reason not to do it. That's a reason to get rid of 30 people in seven periods per per day. Uh, And so what I'm I'm arguing for is uh, a sensible, reasoned judgment that's not set off in a uh, in a rubric, uh, because I think the rubricization of the university is one of the big failures in the 21st century. We are relying on them so heavily that it actually contributes to the very problem that I think we're we're getting at. Uh, and so, what I mean by judgment, then, without being judgmental, is making raising questions. And that's what philosophers are supposed to be doing and doing well. And so in my own practice, I ask lots of questions of the veracity of the claim, the accuracy, whether there's backup, whether there's reason, whether there's any number of any number of ways to come at it. And I would be coming at it uniquely. So the grading that I would do may not be the grading that Kara would do or the grading that Derek would do, but it would still be grading. And so the variety of grading that's still well-supported or well-grounded in the justification for raising the questions and the evaluation of the responses seems to me to be not only uh, a a right that we have as faculty members, but also a responsibility that we should take very seriously. So just to get this correct, I hear in what you're saying that there's there's also a relationship in this, in the way that you're conceiving of it, that you as grader have a particular relationship to the subject matter, and then you are responding to the content in that way um, versus and a, there's... And a relationship to the, to the student. That yeah, is, the, the, right. the, the, the responses to the questions are not abstract. They're not pro forma. They're not in a rubric. They're not on a list. They are generative and authentic questions based on the work that's been provided. And if the work that's been provided is falsified or fake or plagiarized, then it breaks down the kind of relationship that I think is important for both teachers and learners. That's great. Thank you. That's a really helpful distinction. Gabe, what, what is grading for you? Yeah, so um, I, I think one thing that I should say in terms of like the, the paper that I, I presented is that I, I don't really get into this issue about whether or not we should be skeptical of, of grading or what are the reasons for rejecting grades or and so on and so forth. That's not the, the work that I sort of do in this particular paper. Um, my, my argument in this paper is more conditional. It's sort of if you accept or if you are skeptical of grades, then X, Y, and Z follows. I don't give you the reasons why you should be skeptical or not in the, in this paper. But but in terms of, you know, the this question about grading, I think uh, I, I have no problem with anything Darren just said. And, and I, I, when I think of grading... Um, this is I, being recorded, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll repeat myself. I have no problem with anything Darren just said. Um, and I think if we conceptualize grading as this sort of uh, a generative relational understanding between uh, someone with experience and, and perhaps expertise in a certain field, raising authentic organic questions about student work and engaging in this sort of conversational relationship... Uh, that's great. Um, I, I understand. And if you want to call that grading, you know, fine. Uh, I, I understand grading in a bit of a narrower sense in that sort of rubricified, um, listified, you know, uh, numerical sort of system that is so common in K-12 and in higher education, where it's this 
number that you know follows a student around for their entire career and and potentially life as part of their sort of identity and and a signal of good student bad student great student whatever um and so i and and when you look at grade inflation as a discussion specifically it's almost always talked about in those sort of more narrow ways right people uh, who do the research in this field talk about increase in average gpa in higher education over x period of time or um, the, another metric that often gets used is the most frequently given grades, um, which uh, is, are now A's, um, which is, is, has been the case for about 30 years. I think that happened in around 97. A's may, you know, make up something like 45% of all grades given now in higher education, and people point to that as a sort of metric of grade inflation. So, so when I'm talking about grading in the context of the grade inflation discussion, I'm thinking of it in this more narrow, rubricified um, mathematicized sense. Um, and again, you know, we can, if, if what, if what Darren just described is a form of grading, then that's a form of grading that I don't have a problem with. Um, I'm inclined to not call that grading in the way that I'm talking about it, but that's just a sort of semantic quibble. I mean, it's possible for me to do the grading that I'm talking about and still assign a number. Right, because the university. I mean, there there are these structures, of course, that we don't get to choose. Uh, uh, the only choice that we had at Georgia State at one point was whether or not we were going to give A, B, Cs, or do plus minus. Uh, and so you get into uh, degrees of Aness or Bness or what have you. And so uh, that that uh, might complicate uh, the question, but, but granting the institutional requirements that there are grades that are given and numeracy is a part of that, I, I have no problem with making a, a, a numerical judgment or conf, uh, uh, transferring the judgment that I'm making into some sort of number. Uh, it's not like it's pure or perfect or what have you. And I also wonder, Gabe, if it's the case that people are, are uh, saddled with their grades for their entire lives, then grade inflation should be a great thing because everybody's going to get an A. So what's the problem there? Everybody should be happy about themselves. Kenneth, I wonder if you can um, add into this and also specifically speak to the the position of, because Darren talks about the relationship and the relationship between the professor who's leading the class, the content, and the student. And it's a really interesting role to be in the TA role where you are sort of playing someone else's game. And I think that might also resonate with public school teachers who are often grading on rubrics that they as with the professor, like they didn't necessarily create those somebody else might have. So if you can kind of add in anything you want, but also speak to that point. Sure. I mean, first, I think if we're going to talk about grading at all and maintaining the system of grading, we have to be careful not to. And I think Darren and Gabe both touched on this, but we have to be careful not to make it into a, an absolute quantitative thing. I mean, I mean essentially, this is what the, the AI crowd is doing by conceptualizing learning in a way that they're taking for granted what effective means and they're taking for granted what the good is. And they're institutionalizing that in these algorithms that not only are not questioned, but really cannot be questioned. And, and the grading system, if we're going to take it for granted in the same way, has a, has a danger of becoming a similar sort of unquestioned thing. Um, so I think the question then is what is grading for? And if grading is the relationship or if, if grading is part of the relationship between teacher and student, then, it's, then it shouldn't be problematic because it shouldn't, it shouldn't have either high stakes or it shouldn't be based on some sort of competition model. It should be based on what's best for student learning. What's, what is going to aid and further the student in their learning? And, and theoretically, grades could do that by providing feedback, but I'm not sure that the letter and number grade system will get there because it's, there's no connection. The, the letters and the numbers are arbitrary. It's, it's really no different than a rubric because what, what's an A, what's a 75, what's an 80? There's no connection between knowing uh, what Kant's theory of knowledge is and getting a 95 on an essay. Um, in terms of playing someone else's game, I don't, I'm not sure. I've never really thought about it in those terms. Um, 
I mean, there's always the personal relationship that you have with a student can sort of exist outside of that, outside of any other structural mechanism that's imposed. Uh, obviously, you have to work within it, but but the personal relationship that I cultivate with students often has nothing to do with the institutional structure. It's it's on a, a much more human level and and um, I think can can be subversive in ways that both uh, maintain and and work within the the pre-established necessary things that teachers and TAs have to do, but also do it in a way that can be authentic. Um, so so it's about cultivating an environment where if I do, I mean, I, I have to give grades, teachers have to give grades, but it's, ideally you would cultivate an environment in which if you do give a grade to a student that's not a good grade, they wouldn't view it as um, some sort of personal moral judgment. It, they would view it as maybe a, an intellectual challenge or, or authentic feedback that they can take and then go work on whatever it is that the assignment was on. So, so I don't, I don't think that um, grading inherently is inauthentic or, or unnecessary or, or problematic, but if we're going to keep grading, it should be useful to the student for whatever goals they're trying to achieve. That, of course, presumes that the students know what their goals are. And I think part of the problem of the structure of public education is that they don't have space or time to develop those thoughts because they are um, put through a sort of machinery uh, of grading, frankly. It is, it is, uh, it is about promotion. It's about uh, whether or not you're in the upper echelon of an AP class or whether you're in a general ed class or whatever that hierarchical you know, tracking stuff uh, conveys. And so it, it, it's not as though it's irrational for the gamification to have happened. It's quite rational in some ways uh, for students to do exactly what they're doing. And in, and, and in some instances, they are consciously subverting uh, a system that they know is uh, unfair and hierarchically structured and privileging certain people over others. So uh, uh, granting all of that, uh, it, it still seems to me that there is a space to have genuine grading that yields the kind of reflectiveness that Kenneth was referring to that happens in the case of some students, but it tends to be fewer, fewer students than the morally outraged that how dare you give me a B uh, sort of a thing. Thank you. Um, I wanted to add on one more element as I was hearing you talk um, that I didn't hear mentioned, but so when I grade, I, I teach methods courses typically. And so when I'm grading, I'm also giving a communication and I'm explicit about this with the students that they have mastered a very precise set of material that they, or at least thought with that material for a considerable amount of time going into the field. So there's an accreditation element to it. So there is the responsibility to them as learner. And then there's also this communicative responsibility that I feel like I have to school administrators to say that this student has spent a semester engaging with phonics enough so that I can say that they have merited an A versus some students who I say they didn't show up to class enough that I feel like they have engaged with phonics enough to feel like they are remotely prepared to teach that. And so I just I wanted to add in that sort of level of stakes that I see in it as well or similar for medical school that you you want your doctor to have gone through the curriculum um, as well. So let me uh, pivot. We so you, before the episode, just for our listeners to like transparency for our audience in general, we have this like loose list of questions that we ask. And the way that this conversation is going uh, leads me to sort of throw out a question about how how does philosophy enter in? Because we've heard that implicitly in like in the last little bit. And because of the way that this particular issue arises, I'm going to crunch together the fourth and fifth questions, which are about separately practice and policy, because what I'm hearing in this conversation is that these two things are really quite inseparable for uh, the way that teachers experience uh, the sort of competing demands of their professional roles uh, in the classrooms in both uh, K-12 and 
uh, higher education. This conversation also makes me think of an episode that we had done earlier on this show with the historians of education, Ethan Hutt and Jack Schneider, who have a new book out called Off the Mark, how grades, it's the subtitle is ridiculously long, how grades, transcripts and test scores came to matter, but why they don't have to or whatever, which is making a surprisingly uh, conservative argument that if we are going to make massive changes to the way that we count student achievement systematically, we have to be conscious of the roles that this is, the various roles that this has come to serve. And one of the things that I am hearing in the the different perspectives that are articulated by you three as our guests is a sort of different weight that is placed upon the kind of personal communication or the personal communicative function that grades serve between teacher and student about here is how well I think that you have learned this material and the more long distance communication that grades do in terms of synchronizing a system, allowing a student to connect from this particular classroom to med school or something, something else beyond where they won't. That admissions officer cannot countenance the uh, variation in the depth of knowledge. All that they have is this sort of thin signal, and that's sort of all that they can have. So when we think about uh, the practical impacts, what should teachers do with these kinds of questions? It's it seems inseparable to me from the question of like, what are the policy implications of uh, potential systematic changes that we might make in order to make the kinds of grading practices? Uh, educational relations, et cetera, that we would want to see in the world more possible than they are uh, right now. Yeah, not going to happen. And my cynicism is based <laughs> on the politics of both Democrats and Republicans. And so when it comes to education policy, both uh, of the major parties in the United States have uh, sold out to a neoliberal understanding of accountancy such that student achievement is only seen in sort of mercantile business preparatory skills logic. And that kind of reductionism is um, is uh, counter to the kind of relational understanding that I'm trying to, to put forward. Um, all that says is that there are widgets that come through my class and I get to stamp them out in a particular way and tell them that they're good enough to go to the next grade so that they can get a job and they can earn a certain amount of money that then we have to report back in order to show that our programs are successful. It's that kind of neoliberal bias that is um, functionally the problem and I would say in qualified universally in the United States, because uh, when the Week magazine did a survey of of all Americans, it was like some ridiculous amount, like 83 percent agreed, like 83 percent of Americans agreed on something. Yeah, they 83 percent of Americans agreed that the purpose of school is to prepare students with the skills to get a job to compete in the 21st global century, uh, 21st century global economy. That logic is a neoliberal reductionism that I think is a hurdle or or a mountain that is insurmountable at this point. That is that is refreshingly direct. Gabe? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I, I, uh, again, in a, in a rare confluence, I uh, don't disagree with anything Darren said here. I think um, <laughs> you know you're being recorded. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just 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 two two brief things about practical implications. I think because what Darren said is essentially correct that the sort of neoliberal hegemonic narrative about education specifically as a preparation for career is so. Um, uh, stubborn and entrenched at this point. I I think about something like grade inflation as a sort of small and and I can you know uh, expound on this a sort of small act of resistance actually. So I think it comes down to sort of individual actions that we can take in our individual classrooms with respect to individual students or groups of students. Um, and sadly, I think the the policy options are are you know low small. It's a small set of options that are available to us to move towards anything resembling what um, we're we're sort of talking about today or what many philosophers of education would hope for for the educational system with respect to grades or a wide variety of other issues. Um, so I, I think about it at a sort of um, individual action level because that's increasingly becoming, I think, the only thing available to us. What do we do as teachers in our own classrooms with the the 
smaller and smaller degrees of freedom that we have. Not uncomplicated by the the sort of confluence of middle management in the form of things like centers for teaching of learn and, and learning. Uh, the the Chronicle of Higher Ed had a story about that last week or something, and they're sort of how can we get more of these? And in and in some sense, how can we get less get rid of them? I mean, the 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 middle management of most centers for teaching and learning are run by people who don't know anything about teaching and learning. Uh, and so it's frustrating as a philosopher of education to keep talking to people who are from the business world or in PR rather than education uh, in any substantive uh, way. And so to Gabe's uh, point, I'll go on record as saying that I agree with a sliver of what he said, which is that it's, a, it's, an, in, it's an individual sort of uh, judgment uh, call that, that is made and should be made. And so it needn't be subversive, even though it tends to be because of the superstructure of universities and, and, and schools, uh, K-12 schools and P-12 schools as well. Um, but in that case, then we have to talk about the agency of teachers and professors and the degree of freedom that they have, whether it's academic freedom or other kinds of freedom, in order to make these sorts of judgments and stand up for what it is that they actually believe in. And that becomes increasingly difficult the more bureaucratized higher education and P-12 schools are. And I can't imagine a more bureaucratized space than education in the United States. Well said. Darren Oh, sorry. So just just before we, uh, I want to get Kenneth involved as well, but just before following up on Darren's point, Gabe, could I get you to expand upon what makes your vision of grading an act of resistance? What is it resisting? What are the what are the effects on the system of this act of resistance, and what are the effects for the student of the kind of resistance that you were talking about? Yeah. Okay. Um, so this, uh, and, and stop me if I start going on too long, because this is like sort of the, what the bulk of my, my, my paper was about. So, so the bulk of the paper that, that I was writing for, for the conference, um, was essentially trying to, I started out trying to isolate what we're talking about when, because our language in public discourse around great inflation is super morally inflected, right? There's terms like corruption that get thrown around and like sham education and and the moral heart of the university and so on and so forth being undermined by great inflation. And I was trying to figure out uh, when people talk about great inflation this way, what exactly they think it is that's wrong with the practice of great inflation uh, as defined at this sort of and, and again, there's lots of different ways to define great inflation. You can define it in these long-term longitudinal average increase in GPA over time or frequency of the grade given or so on and so forth. And, and just by the way, the empirical research on that stuff um, disagrees actually about whether or not great inflation is even happening or to what degree. Um, some studies show increases in average GPA over time. Others uh, show at the, at the university level actually decreases in average GPA over time. So it just depends on, on what the the researcher looking at uh, as an empirical matter in terms of whether or not or to what degree great inflation is happening. But defining it at, at a sort of low level, right, uh, the, the unwarranted increase in a student's grade in a way that's not related to the quality of their work or something like that, right? My question was, is that practice wrong? Is that is that bare practice wrong in some way? And if so, how? Uh, and I, I was looking through some of the public discourse and writing about this, and, and I was able to distill what I see are sort of two species of arguments against great inflation. One is sort of uh, what I call utility arguments, which is that great inflation has a negative effect. It causes harm in some way, uh, either to an individual or to an institution or to society as a whole. Right. So you might take an example of uh, someone who uh, is great inflated. Uh, they go to a job interview and they're asked some question uh, that they don't know the answer to, but would have if they weren't great inflated, uh, which is itself a complicated empirical question that we would have to like tie that you tie that together in a way that demonstrates harm. And I think that's a very difficult, uh, arguably impossible task. Um, and then they're denied the job on the basis of their poor interview performance. Right. Um, I think that those sorts of arguments are uh, bad, um, and I, I think uh, for one, for one, for one, it's more or less impossible as an empirical matter to demonstrate that you'd have to show that they would have known the answer to the interview question had they not been great inflated. Uh, that the 
them not knowing the answer to that question was the reason they didn't get the job, so on and so forth, right? You'd have to do the utility calculus to demonstrate harm. And I, I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, and, and more importantly, I don't think that's the real reason most people are against great inflation. I think most people are against great inflation because they sense uh, some base level of, of unfairness in the practice, right? That someone is getting something that in, in a fundamental way they don't deserve, right? Uh, and so I, I call these dessert dessert arguments. Um, and then I sort of go into this, I don't have to do this all now, but I go into the structure of dessert claims and figuring out whether or not a grade is a proper uh, a dessert, uh, whether or not grade a grade is the correct dessert to be tied to high academic performance, whatever, that's, that's a little more complicated. So in terms of the uh, uh, practical effects, so I think both of these arguments fail long-term, the dessert arguments and the utility arguments. So my uh, uh, sort of point, I suppose, at the end is that if, you, and again, this is all conditional, if you are someone who has this skepticism about grades as a practice that I think many people in our field do, then you ought to bring your behavior in line with your stated belief about grades. So you believe grades don't matter, well, behave like they don't matter. Um, and one of the implications of that is, you know, uh, give everyone an A, for example, right? Um, regardless. And I, I call that resistance because, um, it, it, you know, you may think, well, giving everyone an A, isn't that what the university wants? We want a high, high you know, high grades average, and, and we want people to, you know, be able to go out and say, look, I did great at, at you know, my university and so on and so forth. I think of it as a form of resistance because it's undermining the the idea of the value of grades in general, right? Uh, and I I think that that is is an act of resistance because our society still puts so much weight on that. And when you ask students, and the empirical research show this, what are you most stressed about in school? It's grades every time. Um, and if you are able to undermine that in some way, uh, and I think there's really there's interesting practical questions here about. Um, if you're teaching a class and your intent is to give everyone an A regardless of performance, do you announce that to the students ahead of time? Do you just do that silently behind the scenes? I don't, those are interesting questions that I don't, I'm not sure about the answers to. Um, but I, I consider it to be an act of resistance for those reasons. Uh, it's bringing in line our stated beliefs about grades for the people that hold them. Again, it's conditional um, with our behavior. And it is, you know, reducing uh, one of the main uh, uh, stressors and things that I, I think hold students back from genuinely engaging with material when all they want to do is do what they're supposed to do to get the grade. I think that negatively impacts their experience of a class and their ability to genuinely engage with the material in that class. The problem is if you, if you inflate to all A's in your subversion, then you're denying the opportunity to uh, challenge the modern sophists who are uh, students in universities and saying, if grades don't matter, then here's a C. Uh, yeah, I think that there's probably a case to be made about, about that. Uh, uh, and I think, you know, telling, um, I, I think ideally that would be, that would be the, the, the way to, I mean, ideally the way to go would be, you don't get grades, right? Um, that, that, that's like long-term. I'm know, not sure. Why is that ideal? Why, why is it ideal not to have any grade at all? Well, again, it depends on how we define grades. If we're defining grades as feedback, uh, genuine relationship comments, I think you're wrong about this, so on and so forth. I'm not saying get rid of any of that, right? Keep that for forever. Hopefully. Um, it's, it's, as Kenneth said earlier, it's the, the slapping a number on it that's supposed to represent you 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 understand as as Kenneth said you you understand uh, Kant to the eighty level you know I just don't know what that means and I don't think it means anything really. I I mean, if I if I can jump in I I think at least part of this uh, can be nuanced a little bit by by pointing out that I think the the idea that universities are supposed to teach the skills that they're going to need in the job is a little bit of an antiquated idea because most companies like Google, Apple, name your company, especially if it's a large corporation like that, are going to provide on-site job training that, that really uh, makes much of the, the university learning irrelevant. I've, I've read interviews that these CEOs are talking about university education as sort of a Derek used the, the, 
the term thin signal. It's, it's just a signifier that this person's not lazy or that this person has some sort of drive motivation that's going to then serve us well at, at Google. But the skills that they learned in the university don't necessarily apply. So we have our own in-house education system that's, that are going to uh, cultivate the skills that they actually need at, at Google. And on the one hand, that's a bad thing because it's it's taking a lot of the importance away from university education. But on another hand, I was interrupting you. Uh, the 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 point is, if if in fact all of that is a thin veneer of indication, then Gabe's inflation of A's to the very students who then wouldn't do anything because they know they have an A would be a, a different kind of subversion. I mean, you could you could be graduating people who are absolutely lazy and don't care because they know they can go to Gabe's class and get an A. And then he's going to get all the students. I'm going to get two. My class is going to get canceled and I'll get fired. And that's just absolutely unfair because Gabe Keen is not better than I am as a professor. I can say that categorically. <laughs> but it, I think using pointing to universities as this thin signal, paradoxically, I mean, it requires some sort of signaling mechanism, which is the grade and the grade in that sort of system has to be the arbitrary A or 80 B. It's a number or letter system because it's an, an it's easily not the grade. It's the degree. It's, it's the fact that you've graduated, but you can graduate with what's the 2.0 or I mean, you, it, it, you, there's no requirement that it's an A in order for you to get your degree. So completion, if that's going to be a signal to Apple CEOs, then, OK, I've got my degree. And and uh, and uh, I mean, I'm fine for it to signal something. I would rather it signal something substantive rather than uh, leave open the the avenue or the lane for individuals who know that it's now totally totally gamified to not learn or do anything. They don't have to read or write or think or do anything at all. And still under this sort of proposal, they can get their degree and be and be hired by Google. They could also then be fired by Google, but whatever. But to uh, interject this particular point, <clears throat> so my use of the word signal, just to say it out loud, comes from the economist Brian Kaplan's the Case Against Education, which is an awful book, but uh, but very useful, like it, case in point of somebody who takes a sort of neoliberal framework to be absolute and correct. And like the, it's like the logical extreme of that position in many ways. Um, his argument is that we have to use things like grades and college degrees because we are not allowed to use IQ tests anymore. We don't have to go down that rabbit hole at all. But like uh, the part, Darren, that I feel like your point is missing is the competitive nature of the marketplace. So that, yes, like uh, having a B.A. is the floor, but who actually gets to the next level, who actually gets the job at Google then becomes a matter of competitive ranking according to things like GPA. So there is a material difference for students between uh, this, the professor who gives an A and the professor who gives a C because all the value of the signal, whatever, there's differential value to differential signals. Is yeah, I, would be, I would be highly surprised if anybody at Microsoft give a damn about what your transcript was. Uh, what they care about is whether you can answer these silly questions as to whether or not you can be a duck on the moon and think of a way to get off of it or whatever it is. And so these sorts of, these sorts of interview questions that are representative of the corporate mindset are part of the, the, the problem and, and belie the larger point that I think you're, you're trying to tie this to. I don't, I don't, I, nobody looks at a transcript. Yeah, that's that's true. Kara, did you want to come back to something or is that moment passed? I guess um, my my original question had passed. I was thinking about sort of how do your different um, values or, or philosophies around grading live out in practice. And that's one direction, although we've touched on that a little bit. I think where the conversation has landed for me um, is it's raising for me the kinds of thinking that I do as a philosopher of education around grading. And for me, I've spent countless hours trying to disaggregate what is evaluative, what is assessment, what do I owe the students so that they can get an A 
What do they owe me so that they can get an A? You know, what is the responsibility on both ends? Um, And so I almost wonder if in closing, if you have suggestions for questions that teachers or and professors um, might be asking themselves around grading as opposed to specific suggestions for how people should approach it. What kinds of, I don't know, Darren, what, what, what would you, for example, when you're um, supporting TAs, what kinds of things do you ask them to think about as um, they start to grade in their journey? And I'd open that to others as well. Well, I mean, uh, mine is a, a, a fairly um, relaxed way, which is to say I uh, hire TAs or uh, uh, bring in TAs who I think are exceptionally good. And so I trust that they will do X, Y, and Z. I will pose questions to them about different ways of thinking about the grading or different ways of evaluation or the number of evaluations. And so, for example, as a result of the example that Kenneth gave from the spring of 2023, when we had the students submit the papers two weeks before the AI mechanism came about to, to be able to figure out that they used it. Uh, and then we, you know, played gotcha with that. Then we did away with the entire, that entire assignment and came up with a new one, which is writing by hand in the first 15 minutes of class about the readings that were supposed to be done. Now, what, what, what we might say about this is, duh, uh, I mean, obviously, that would be a great thing to have had uh, happen anyway, uh, but it didn't click until this other generative uh, negative experience with AI and chat GPT and, uh, you know, the sort of gaming of, of the grading system uh, played out that we realized just how important it is not only for a sort of responsibility issue on the part of the students, not accountability as much as responsibility. They're learning, in fact, that it's necessary to read. Not only is it a quiz, so in that case, it is still a kind of gamification, but it's a more authentic representation of what it is that they've actually done in the previous week in preparation for the lecture that they're going to get and then the breakout that follows that. Uh, and so that might be a roundabout way of getting at your question, Kara, but it's a, it's about that interaction with TAs to develop and change over time modify what we're doing in light of what the students are experiencing and the TAs are reporting via their experience. And so a lot of it has to do with with trust. And I would point this out as well. I think it is related to the question of grading, that there is an enormous lack of trust with regard to the professor, uh, the professorate, but even more so in P12. I mean, it seems to me that most teachers are so under the thumb uh, that they are required to use certain rubrics because they aren't trusted to make judgments themselves. And I think that's a morally reprehensible situation for us to find ourselves in. And it might be one of the reasons that we're hemorrhaging teachers left and right in the United States. Is it fair to say that this ongoing exchange that we've had in this conversation in which you're, all of you are interrogating each other's approach is also part of the conversation that teachers should be having with each other or mentors should be having with teachers where you're constantly kind of pushing each other around what is it that you're trying to accomplish? I think so. And I also would add to that a a point that I think I raised before, which is that takes time. And so there must be space, there must be time for those conversations to be had, not just, you know, a, a 10 minute uh, a scheduled thing whereby at two o'clock every other week you 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 know meet with people and say something. It has to be it has to be a far more authentic, uh, generative, and time-consuming in a positive way, time-consuming project. And I I fear that we are so under the gun of neoliberal mandates that there's always a deadline that we have to get to rather than have these sorts of important conversations. Thank you, Kenneth. Do you want to weigh in on that? And specifically, could I ask a a question about your role as Darren's TA? That is, every TA is in a a bind like this, particularly TAs in education. You have your own sort of grading philosophies. You doubtless ended up with Darren because of a certain degree of overlap in the way that you see things. But you are also part of the same institution uh, and responsive to those pressures, too. Could you talk a little bit about how, as a TA, you uh, triangulate among the various sort of pressure centers that you... Uh, Be- before he answers, ended up with is probably not the way to describe him becoming my TA. 
uh, firstly. And secondly, Kenneth, this is being recorded, so be careful. <laughs> I mean, I, again, the only thing that I'm, that I'm thinking about when I give grades is what is going to help the student? And I, I like to think that I, I try to cultivate an environment in my classroom in which I can, I can critique a student, criticize a student's work, and uh, give them a grade if, if I have to give them a grade. Give them a grade that may not be the grade that they wanted, but they take that grade because they know me, because I've cultivated this relationship and because I've cultivated this environment. They take the grade as productive, constructive feedback rather than a judgment on their personal character or on their uh, their ability. And um, that a lot of time that that requires. Giving much, much more than a number or a letter at the top of the page. Darren mentioned that we, we transitioned to handwritten assignments this year, so I've been doing a lot of of writing in the margins, handwriting notes on papers, and, and uh, we have a, a three-point grading system on these assignments. So I'll, I'll give either a one, two, or a three. It's, the, the number grade is very simple, but the feedback that I give in the margins and that I give sometimes verbally with students before and after classes is the real important part. The, the grade is just a, a sort of vague reference, uh, a vague indicator of uh, in general, how I think they did. The important part is the feedback and the personal relationship. And, and that's what I think is important. The grade is almost beside the point. Gotcha. Thank you. Gabe, you were also, you also had the, the experience of ending up with Darren, I'm pretty sure. So I would say distinct pleasure. <laughs> That's getting closer to where it should be. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking honor or privilege, but that's, that's yes, okay. Yeah. No. So how did you, as a TA, you know, years ago now, uh, navigate, like find yourself navigating that same kind of pressure? And as faculty now too. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I had a similar experience to Kenneth. I, I, I didn't, I didn't experience it, it as a, a pressure. Um, you know, there, there wasn't really, um, I, I, you know, Darren, I can't recall a conversation that we had about, you know, norming our grading philosophies or, you know, any of these things that, that, that people who teach the same courses often do or things like that. I, you know, I, I think it was as, as, as we've been sort of articulating a sort of organic, like, uh, harmony between how we thought about things like feedback and and what we want to give to the students and 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 as Kenneth was just saying what matters uh, what what's important in what we tell them um, and uh, the the, the uh, interaction that we have there um, you know these days it's I I, I have a sort of similar uh, philosophy it's it's um, because it, you know again like when when they see the number at the top of the page because this is how they've been trained. Um, they don't, they don't look at the rest <laughs> unless it's, you know, they don't, they don't look at whatever else is there. Um, and I think that's, it's a shame because as we've all been sort of agreeing, the rest of what's there is actually the important part. Um, and so I, 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 my goal with this stuff about great inflation is to sort of try to disarm that temptation to only focus on that number at the top. Um, and I think there's something to this idea that, you know, if they already know what's going to be there, um, they don't have to focus on it or look at it as much, right? Uh, they can look at and spend time on the other on the other parts. And I think that um, if there's this sort of um, underlying claim, I think about motivation in in some of what Darren is saying, which is that the the higher grade will motivate them to do the deeper engagement, the deeper reading, the deeper thinking. And I I, I personally have just it anecdotally empirically found that to not be the case. Um, the, the higher grade or the, the, the drive for getting a higher grade, it leads them to try to do what they think we want rather than genuine engagement. Um, and so I, I, I sort of just reject the implicit claim about motivation that a higher grade or the pursuit of a higher grade will generate a deeper engagement. Uh, I think that there's there are better ways to go about that if that's what our goal is, which I think it is. I think it should be our goal um, or one of them. 
thank you very much, uh, everyone, for, for those answers, for coming on and talking about this issue. I find that, <clears throat> speaking personally, I am tempted to just continue this conversation all day. But as others surely have things to do, we should probably uh, bring this to a close. Um, so, yes, thank you for being here. Thank you for uh, your work. Uh, thanks for bringing the uh, the the papers that you wrote for OVPES to a wider audience here. I understand the Southeastern Philosophy of Education Society conference is happening soon. I mean, at the time of this in February, at the time of this recording, you know, the submission deadline is six days away. But by the time it's released, that'll be passed. It's only 500 words. Oh, yeah. By the time it's released, it'll be passed. So there you go. <laughs> Well, thank you for having us. I, this was uh, fantastic. Yes, thanks, Karen and, and Derek. Appreciate the time. And that is our show. Many thanks to Darren, Gabe, and Kenneth for taking the time to talk to us. As always, do subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and a review to help others discover us as well. The email address at which you can reach Derek and I together is thinkinginthemidst at gmail.com. As we work on our upcoming lineup, please use the form linked in the episode description if you'd like to suggest future topics and or guests. So for Derek Gottlieb, and in two weeks when we put up the next episode, I'm Kara Furman, and we'll see you next time.